Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, and it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class practitioners in UX design and product management. My guest today is Lewis Rosenfeld, or Lou as he prefers to be called. According to Lou's Wikipedia entry, he's an American information scientist, but that doesn't really do him justice. He's much more than that. Lou is Rosenfeld Media's founder and publisher. His company is responsible for surfacing and sharing the expertise of dozens of world-class UXs, publishing their books, providing training opportunities, and convening global conferences, all so that we can learn from one another. Lou is also widely considered to be one of the founding minds and practitioners of information architecture. In the early 90s, Lou co-founded Argus Associates with Peter Morville. It was one of the first consulting firms entirely devoted to the practice of information architecture. Under Argus and as an independent consultant, Lou has helped companies including AT&T, Ford, PayPal and Caterpillar, as well as many other large, highly political organisations to grapple with their information headaches. With Peter, Lou co-authored the book Information Architecture for the World Wide Web, often referred to as the IA Bible. It was first published in 98 and is now in its fourth edition. When Lou's not busy producing conferences, orchestrating communities, or reading book pitches, he can be found interviewing other leading minds in UX on his podcast, The Rosenfeld Review. His personal mission is to help designers make the world a better place. And today, he's here with me on Brave UX. Lou, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brennan. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. And I always like to start on a serious note. And I couldn't help but notice on your LinkedIn profile that you described yourself as many of the things I've just read in your introduction, but as a publisher, podcaster, author, conference producer, and polar bear. Now, I'm fairly sure that Rosenfeld Media's logo is an elephant. So what's the story behind the polar bear? Oh, the polar bear. That's, uh, that was the, uh, the animal on the cover of the information architecture book that we did with Riley. And oh, it makes a lot of sense it. now. Yeah, they, they refer to it as the polar bear book, which is a lot nicer sound than information architecture for the World Wide Web or the Web and Beyond, as the fourth edition is called. But um, I will say that, you know, the O'Reilly model of animals uh, on the covers has uh, always been a great one, but the authors have zero input. So we were just grateful that it was a polar bear and not a, a banana slug or, or uh, one of the toads that they've got on some of the book covers. We're very happy with the polar bear. It's one of my favorite animals. I think you did well to get that randomly selected. So tell me, Lou, you earned a BA from Michigan, University of Michigan. It was in history. And then you went on to complete your master's in information and library studies. Now I get the history side of things, but what exactly is library studies? Well, um, librarianship is, is not just about sitting in a, uh, a behind a desk in a room full of books and, and shushing people from time to time. Librarianship <laughs> is about many things that are really critical for people today who are dealing with information of any sort who's not. So um, you know, we had to learn um, some rigorous things about, for example, building a collection of books that people would use. 
mm-hmm. how to measure that use. That's not so unlike uh, what we have to do when we are creating a content strategy and thinking about the analytics associated with that more in a, in a more modern telling. Uh, we had to learn things about how to do a reference interview. So that means how to understand a user, in this case, a library patron, and understand um, what their needs are, which aren't always what they say, but how to mm-hmm. help them express what those needs are in a way that's not uncomfortable or prying, and then connect them with the information contained in the library. Uh, we had to learn things like cataloging, uh, how to make information about books and also about archival content uh, accessible to people in the language that made sense to those people. Mm -hmm. So how do you catalog, tag, uh, and and otherwise label information in a way that it can be found, understood, and used? So librarianship um, is like an extremely valuable set of skills. And when I was in library school in the late 1980s, you know, we were learning those basic skills, but they were very much framed in terms of a physical place known as a library, which Mm -hmm. is understandable, but very limiting. And in fact, you know, they all used to be called library uh, schools back then, and they're all called I-schools, information schools or information science programs or something along those lines today because it's better Mm -hmm. branding but it's also an effort to connect those skills to the modern digital era. And when I was there, there was talk about the information explosion upon that's go, that was going to be upon us. Mm. But there wasn't really yet much action about what that meant. And when, when Peter Morville and I, for example, started thinking and, and writing about information architecture, we had a couple chips on our shoulders collectively. One was we wanted to show the world that librarianship was going to be really, really critical as the information revolution exploded, which it did, especially mm-hmm. once the web came out, you know, when, once the graphical browser came out, Mosaic, in like 1994. Uh, and we wanted to show live librarians that they were important outside of libraries and a lot of them couldn't see life outside of those rooms full of books so that was our goal so it sounds like you were really well placed at the time that the internet was about to or was taking off to take these skills that you had been learning in library studies and apply them to this new medium and you mentioned Peter Morville, who is your co-author, but also your co-founder of Argus Associates. How did you and Peter come to meet? Well, it's interesting. So um, actually, he's not a co-founder technically. I had started the company with a professor at the School of Information at the University of Michigan, uh, an old friend of mine, Joe James. Mm -hmm. He's now at the University of Washington. In any case, uh, Joe and I... When we first started Argus, we started it as a hobby to teach people how to use the Internet. And this was when that meant teaching them how to use Telnet and FTP mm-hmm. and Waze and Archie and Veronica and all these bizarre, difficult-to-use tools. And we were teaching librarians and we were teaching educators and a number of other people 
in workshops that we would produce ourselves back in 92, 91, even. Um, and then um, Peter uh, was a, uh, a grad student. I was actually working for the School of Information full time, and Joe was on the faculty, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, we saw opportunities to grow Argus. And um, we brought Peter on as an employee, our first employee. Uh, I see. A very promising yeah. student. You know, obviously a very smart guy. Uh, it's pretty obvious then. Uh, and, you know, over that, that time, um, not only did I start the doctoral program at Michigan, um, but we saw that great transition or that pivot from teaching people how to use content on the internet to teaching people how to produce content, basically products. And it was amazing for them because suddenly not only had they learned some really interesting skills, but they had customers and mm. actual users. And, you know, if you're a library science student in 1994, 95, that's not what you were expecting. Hmm. It was addictive and, um, it was revolutionary for them. And, um, you know, one of them, for example, uh, parlayed his work on a personal finance guide to becoming a VP at uh, at Excite, if you remember Excite. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we were um, teaching people how to do that. I think it was like the first courses in academia, at least in the United States, that were, were about creating content for the Internet. Uh, and... Um, Come 1995, I had to choose between staying in the doctoral program and uh, uh, getting Argus really going because we knew there was a lot of work. Peter was pretty busy and uh, I had to choose. So I figured, yeah, someday I could go back and finish my PhD. Somebody has you gone and finished it? (laughs) Not quite yet. (laughs) Maybe I'll go back. That was, let's see, uh, 26 years ago. Yeah. Plenty of time left. Plenty yeah. of time. I, I'm, I'm all. I, I'm ABD. I'm all but dissertation. Got all my coursework done. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. So it is, is a good. It is good that you've touched on that and um, and and told us why you did end up pursuing Argus full time and, and not completing the PhD. You said that the the work was starting to pick up, and I just want to put this into context for people that are listening. So what Lou's been talking about is even pre-browser days. A lot of the tools that Lou's been mentioning there is before there was even a Netscape or an Internet Explorer. So this is really early and pioneering stuff. Oh, yeah. I was you, a, um, I had an informal title. I was one of the University of Michigan Gopher Masters. <laughs> that means I ran a Gopher server. And Gopher is really, you know, look it up. It's pretty, it was pretty cool. But uh, as soon as the web got uh, graphical, it just wiped away Gopher. Mm. I wonder if it'll come back at some point. So you ran Argus for 12 years, if I'm correct, leaving it in 2003. And Mm -hmm. from what I can tell, it seemed like a consultancy, an information architecture consultancy, at least what it ended up being. What changed for you? What was the, uh, the moment that you realized that you had done what you wanted to do with Argus and it was time to move on. I wish I wish I could answer that question, but it, that moment didn't really come. So um, we actually um, reached our peak 
in uh, late 2000, I remember October of 2000, we were approaching 40 employees. Mm -hmm. And we had, you know, we were doing consulting for large organizations, not not startups, not not uh, dot coms, but you know, insurance companies, uh, consulting firms, uh, utility companies, some you know manufacturers. We had a pretty blue chip clientele, and we, um, you know, most of the people on our team were librarians, uh, but many of them were specialists that came from related areas. We were actually trying to build an early interdisciplinary UX team. So we had a specialist mm. in ethnography. We had another specialist in uh, deep taxonomy development. We had a specialist in markup languages. We had a specialist in usability engineering and, and so forth. And we had a really interesting model. And then we had an economic downturn. And mm. so from October 2000, our peak, Peter and I had to close the business down in actually not 2003, but April of 2001. So almost exactly 20 years ago, uh, because a business like that, um, was a canary in a coal mine for an economic downturn companies, even large ones that really were in pretty good shape, the IBMs and so forth, like where were our clients, uh, were cutting back on their consulting budgets and, if you're going to cut back on consulting, the first thing you're going to cut is the area that you understand the least and has the least tangible value, and that's something like information architecture. So um, we saw the writing on the wall. We didn't want to drag it out, um, and uh, we decided we would just close everything down and pay off uh, our bills and, and pay severance to all of our people uh, rather than go bankrupt, and that's what we did. So it was a beautiful, beautiful model, but we didn't quite get to realize what we'd hoped for. And thinking about that time, what was that like for you going through that and making those, which sound like very difficult decisions, not just personally, but with an impact on other people's lives and careers? How was that for you? How did that feel? Terrible. It's horrible. Um, uh, to lay people off, we had to do one round of layoffs. It's horrible. Um, mm. It's like one of the worst things I've ever had to go through. And I had it easy compared to the people getting laid off. We had a very loyal team. Listen, I mean, we were based in in the Midwest, in the U.S. It wasn't typically a destination compared to the coasts. And yet we were pulling in people from Sweden and Australia um, mm -hmm. uh, who wanted to come work for us. And we had a, we had almost zero turnover at a time when the economy had been really hot and dot-com boom was happening. We never would lose anyone because it was a really good place to work, really good situation, and we were all really behind the vision. Uh, so it was it was painful, um, mm. but it is one of those things you go through uh, at some point in business. Is, uh, you know, you have your ups and you have your downs, and you, you learn from both. And uh, I wouldn't wish that pain on anyone, but I can't imagine being in, uh, being an entrepreneur for more than a few years and not going through it. Mm. So thinking about what you did learn from that experience and what you are doing now with Rosenfeld Media, you know, what are some of those key learnings or experiences that have shaped the way that you have taken the direction with Rosenfeld that you have? Well, I'd say one big theme common to both is a, a measure of healthy naivete. 
So um, I had no idea what I was doing when I started Argus, nor when I went full time and started hiring people. Um, I guess I had uh, I couldn't have been a total washout because we we were able to succeed to a degree, but I really had mm-hmm. no idea what I was doing. And um, I mean, I started as a hobby, and Rosenfeld Media hobby. Mm-hmm. I was making a living doing uh, information architecture consulting as a independent consultant and uh, had a lot of freedom. Money was good, but I was not satisfied because it didn't seem mm-hmm. like consulting really could move the needle in significant ways with companies I was working with. It was very frustrating. And I wanted to create something tangible. And books are very tangible. And you can actually mm-hmm. say and point out, point out Here's how we designed it. Here's why. Check it out. Use it. Tell me what you think. Um, I think also information architecture has not only been like obviously critical to a company like Argus. That's what we're about as a consulting service. But um, you know every aspect of what we do at Rosenfeld Media is infused with IA. Whether it's the IA of our books. I mean, I, that's kind of what I do for all of our books. I work with authors <laughs> on structuring their content, coming up with the narrative arc that makes sense, labeling chapter titles so you can get a sense of that journey when you look at the table of contents. Mm-hmm. Well, there's tons of IA that goes into books. That's like, I don't even understand how it, it gets neglected by many publishers because it, it, it's the key to unlocking the content. Even the key to writing the content, if you don't have a good structure as an author, it's going to be a difficult journey for you, much less for your readers. Information architecture for designing programs of conferences, same thing, narrative art, through lines, themes that uh, uh, cross over multiple days, uh, making sure that people's energy levels are considered as you think about the flow of how their time is going to be spent, and especially now in virtual. Um, IA just pervades so much of not only the individual talks our speakers give, and we work very closely with our speakers over months for every one of our conferences, but again, how the structure goes over the course of multiple days. So there's mm-hmm. you know, a combination of IA and naivete, and maybe those things kind of go naturally hand in hand, who knows. Hmm. You did speak about leaving Argus behind and moving into this independent consulting model and that it wasn't fulfilling and ultimately that led to your founding of Rosenfeld Media. Let's just go back to that time briefly because I understand that it was during that time you spent a lot of time on the road with Steve Krug. And having recently spoken to Steve, he speaks very highly of you. And I know from listening to some of your podcasts as well, that you speak and think very highly of him. What was it about that time together on the road that was so special and that you enjoyed so much? Steak. (laughs) We would, um, so what Steve and I did was, um, Steve kind of helped liberate me from the Nielsen Norman tour. I, I was doing that. Uh, uh, I mean, I was, I enjoyed that experience for about a year, but, um, um, you know, Steve and I decided we could just self-produce our own workshops. And this is at a time mm-hmm. when there were very few UX-related workshops. And so Steve and I would do as many as six cities a year for 
one of us would do our full day workshop, then we'd go out for a steak dinner, and the next day or another one of us would do the workshop. And we would just basically handle you know, things together in terms of finding locations and booking the business via, usually via my website of the week. And, um, and handling everything in a way that was just fun and gave us an excuse to, to go to a steakhouse in a different city the night in between uh, a bunch of times a year. And, and um, uh, we made a good living doing that for a number of years. And, uh, and Steve is just a fun person to, to spend time with. Uh, and um, he's always been very supportive of work that I've been doing. And, and uh, in fact, he continues to be supportive. Um, we're this in the next few months, we'll be putting out um, a book by Caroline Jarrett, who's also a friend of, of both of ours, a very close friend of Steve's. And he's just been so generous with his time working with her on her book, just uh, volunteering because, you know, if you're going to get uh, free consulting from Steve Krug on your book, you, you, you take it. You don't, you don't, mm -hmm. you don't pass that up. In fact, I will say that when we started publishing books at Rosenfeld Media, I did a fair amount of user research before we started, uh, especially on the design. And mm. I learned through a number of sessions, uh, meeting with people in the field that the all time favorite book, this is, you know, this is like 2006 or so, was Don't Make Me Think, Steve's book. And I dug into why. And there were a lot of design features as well as the voice and tone that no one can ever really reproduce because Steve has a special knack for creating really compelling content that we all envy. But we learned a bit from what he did and even worked with some of the same personnel to produce our earliest books. And so the mm -hmm. DNA of Don't Make Me Think is in every Rosenfeld meeting book. <laughs> and that's a... Um... A huge compliment, I suppose, to, to both of you uh, having done that. And I also was thinking about my chat with Steve recently, and I wondered how much of this uh, generous consulting is a distraction from his own uh, writing of his book about writing, knowing how much he loathes writing. I think it's probably he's doing himself a favor in that respect as well. Yeah, I, it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of cadence he works at on that book, because I've I've... You know, I've been, I've known Steve since the first edition of Rocket Surgery came out, as well as all the editions of Don't Make Me Think past the first one. And um, I know what he's like when he's writing a book. So um, <laughs> let, let's all give a, some thoughts and prayers that he gets through the process in one piece. I'm sure he will greatly appreciate that. Now, Lou, I remember reading somewhere that you've said, and I'll just quote you now, that my life's mission is to convene people, especially ones who don't normally find themselves in the same room. And looking at your your history, looking at what you've been doing with Rosenfeld Media of late, you've done a lot of that over the course of your career. What is it about bringing people together that is so important to you? Oh, you know, you, you would probably expect me to give this wonderful answer about, you know, how it's good for humanity and whatnot. <laughs> I won't. I won't. Let me be honest with you. I, I do it for myself because uh, my my psychology for many years was uh, I didn't feel comfortable in groups unless I felt like I really knew I belonged. And the only way I belonged was to organize them. 
whether it was uh, uh, a, a softball team or baseball team back in, uh, in college or high school or whatever it might be, uh, uh, or happy hour, regular happy hour in grad school I used to organize because I didn't really feel too comfortable if I hadn't organized it. So um, isn't that sad? It's terribly sad, but it is the truth. And um, that's not totally fair. I do like getting people together. It, it, I f there was a movie that came out uh, around 20 years ago called The Commitments. Did you ever see The Commitments? I have not. Everyone should see The Commitments just because I think I it's a great movie. And The Commitments follows the uh, path um, of um, a young man in Dublin who loves soul music. Mm. And he decides he is going to put together the greatest soul band Dublin's ever seen. And, and it's about his journey of finding a singer, a brass section, a bass player, a guitarist, et cetera, et cetera, drummer. And um, how these people, he had to find them in different places, how different they were. Actually, for the most part, they greatly disliked each other. But he managed to get them together just for a little bit of time, and they achieved greatness. Now he wasn't a musician himself, and uh, I like getting people together the same way to be a band leader to get people together who know a lot more about all aspects of UX design, certainly more mm -hmm. than I do. I'm a generalist, but I love to get these people together and see what they can do, even if it's just for a, a, a moment in time. I, I tried to do a lot of that uh, and did some, some, with some success first in the information architecture community, helped start mm -hmm. a conference program the first two years of the information architecture summit, which is still going as the IA conference these days, coming up actually pretty soon this month. And um, I helped co-found the information architecture Institute, which is no longer, uh, but did some really great things in its time. Mm. I started uh, something called the User Experience Network, which also mm -hmm. after eight years petered out. We never quite made it. And what I found is that people who start things, and I'm one of them, people like to convene things and convene people. It's great work. And um, the problem is we're not the same people who like to run them and sustain them over time. I'm certainly not. So I basically built Rosenfeld Media to be a business that sustains those types of things over time, that is almost a public-private partnership. So we do a lot of things that are free. Like mm -hmm. we have communities that are um, associated with each of our conferences. Membership is free, and there's thousands of members, and we have free content sessions every month, discussions, and then some small number of those people pay to go to our conferences. And it's a virtuous cycle. We learn from the community. We keep the conversation going year-round in order to do a better job of programming the conferences and knowing who out there is a really strong presenter and what ideas are really germane to the community. And I, I, it makes such sense. I don't really understand why it's not more common. We, you know, a conference is a polished snapshot of a conversation in the community. It's always yeah. happening. Why would you just helicopter in or parachute in for three days a year and then vanish? 
Mm. Why would you not want to keep that going all year round? Now, the challenge in that is that you have to get smart people who know each of those communities' topic areas. You know, let's say design ops. The, you, know, you have to have some design ops people who, who facilitate that conversation that's happening at scale in the community. Mm, I just spoke with Kate Talsey on that oh, note, yeah, and I understand she's, yeah, all right, yep, yep. Yeah, so she was uh, one of the people doing advancing research, and mm. we pay those people. So we have curation teams that organize these communities and these conferences, and you know, they do all the programming, and they're paid to do their work. It's not a full-time job, but um, they are people from each of those communities who are respected and have good networks and like getting people together and like for, like bringing forward the conversation, the discourse, and the learning. So that's our model. Mm. I'm just the guy who starts it, and then I get out of the way. I'm that guy in Dublin who couldn't play a horn or sing a note, but loves that moment where they get together and the synthesis happens, things gel, and it's exciting when it you spoke about getting out of the way and how starting a, a movement or, a, or, or convening a conference is different to sustaining that. And I noticed looking through the Rosenfeld Media website that your brother, Ed Rosenfeld, has become the chief operating officer for Rosenfeld Media. What is it like working with your brother? Well, let's see. I want to strangle him on. Mondays, Wednesdays, he wants to strangle me Tuesdays and Thursdays and Fridays. We don't talk to each other at all. No, actually, it's not really that bad. It's, it, you know, um, I've known him all my life. He's, he's older. And um, mm-hmm. we actually come from um, a family uh, where we've had a history of family businesses. And we're very aware of, of how that can be both great and problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're very careful constantly be talking about that and um we're also really different uh, i he's got a fantastic mind for systems which when you're in a small but highly complex business like we are i i, I don't mean to like it's not like I, it's something i brag about but it is a really, mm. really complicated business like just for example um how book distribution works globally in this age is like unbelievable in terms of the complexity, but he can wrap his mind around stuff like that. I can't. Mm. And uh, how we find people to curate and write and present and do all the other things we do is my thing. And mm. I'm of the field, and I have 25, 30 years of building those relationships. He, he doesn't. So that's a very good combination. Mm. You mentioned that he was your older brother. What was your relationship like growing up and how has it changed to the present day? Well, Ed is 10 years older than I am. So by the time um, I was at least semi-conscious, he was already out of the house. Hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, we have a pretty close family, so it wasn't like we didn't spend time together. But, I mean, 10 years is a big difference until you're into your, you know, until I was into my 20s. I don't know that I, I, like, you Ed as well as my young, the younger brothers in our family, there's five of us, but, um, Mm -hmm. uh, um, it's been really a pleasure to, uh, live in the same city, uh, which we have for the last 13, 14 years. And, 
have our kids get to know each other and um, uh, to, to really kind of hash out what a business like this can be. Um, it's a creative pursuit. One of the things that people who style themselves as creative sometimes fail to wrap their minds around is that things like a business is a very creative uh, undertaking. And uh, mm. I think we both get that from different perspectives. So we just enjoy it and uh, mm. just fun to, to work on it together. If anything, uh, you know, we have too many ideas. So that's the, mm. the issue. We always have to kind of beat those ideas down uh, or we'll never get anything done. <laughs> well, it sounds like a, a very fun, rewarding and creative environment to be in. And it's great to hear that as brothers, you're able to make that work. And Lou, you touched on the fact that your family has had a history with family businesses. And I understand that Ed had previously run the Rosenfeld family business before joining you at Rosenfeld Media. You also mentioned the importance of maintaining the communication between the two of you. And you sort of just touched on the difficulty that you can experience in family business. I wondered if you would just tell us a little bit about what the risks are and how you're actively managing that with uh, Ed in order to bring Rosenfeld Media to even greater success. Well, I think the, the main thing, and this is really true with any partnership, is you have to draw the lines of responsibility and accountability. Mm. But then you have to revisit them continually because like anything else complex um, that's that's in the world, uh, a business is a complex system that's constantly um, adapting to um, un uh, you know an un unbelievable array of, of variables that are constantly in flux. You know, it's a moving target built on moving targets. And mm. So what it is now is different than it was a year ago. Oh gosh, especially after this last year, and it's different than it'll be what it'll be in a year and so you have to have that um that line of communication open and that realization that you have to keep not only understanding what that business is but how you together need to manage it and how things mm -hmm. change so ed started working uh, with us as a consultant that's a very different relationship that kind of naturally, organically grew into uh, uh, being a partner hmm. as we're open to it. And, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of work he's doing uh, a year or two from now probably be a bit different um, than it is now, as it will be for me. But we'll still be constantly looking at that boundary between what we do. And, uh, you know, you all, you all, there's also things that are not so obvious who's doing what or who should be owning what. And, Mm -hmm. uh, again, uh, unless you're thinking about that together, talking about those liminal areas, um, you're going to be in trouble. So we, we make a point of doing that and talking mm -hmm. at least a few times a week. Mm -hmm. So speaking of boundaries and responsibilities, I understand that one of the things that falls within your realm of responsibility is reviewing book proposals. For anyone that's listening to the show today or in the future, uh, what advice can you offer them if they were thinking about sending you, Lou, a book proposal? How should they approach that? We're a little different than traditional publishers in the way we work. Our, mm -hmm. our motto is, is collaborate iteratively, or maybe it should be iterate collaboratively. I'm still not sure about it. But um, you know, we don't do 100 books a year. 
a good year for us is like six books. And they're very kind of handcrafted and we invest heavily in them in terms of, I don't just mean production and so forth. I mean, editing in an ongoing way, what's called developmental editing, where we have like very close collaboration between a, a real editor while the, the author is writing and then the author. And we also start the conversation early on while the book is being written about what kind of research it needs, what mm. kind of marketing it's going to get. Because we actually find that research and marketing are two sides of the same coin, if done properly. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, a prelude to or preamble to uh, the fact that we do a lot and we don't scale very easily. A lot of it falls down on my shoulders and a, a very small team. We're, we're not 10 people. So it's a very small team. And for that reason, we're very selective. Uh, and when people come to me with a manuscript, I'm not interested. Maybe a really good book, but we've not been able to collaborate iteratively on thinking about it together, thinking about the audience that's out there, thinking about how mm-hmm. we best develop for that audience, thinking about how we'll research among that audience and market to that audience. And that has to be done over time. I don't really like to see manuscripts. I a lot of people think I should be really thrilled. Hey, I've already written a book. It's, it's not really how we work. And it's, there's nothing wrong with it. Many other publishers, that's how they work. It's just not our model. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other things that um, I'm always a bit surprised by, um, you know, uh, how people write books in ways that, like people in our field who really understand and empathize with other people, users, customers, they don't have that same empathy with readers. Mm. It's surprising. And um, they write as if they are the important person in the book, their perspective, their experience. And a book is a polished version of a conversation, just like a conference program, as I said earlier. Mm. So how do you do that? You make the reader the hero. And you think about where they are, how they feel. You may talk about yourself early on, but you pivot quickly to who you are, the reader. I'm the author. You're the reader. Who are we together? Mm. And if you can establish the we, that, that we have a rapport, you and I, I, you may not be, as a reader, in the room with me and synchronously telling me what you feel and what you think. But I should have done some research during the writing, figure that out, so that when you do read it, you feel as if I wrote it for you, and that I understand your pain, and understand your perspective and your context, so that mm-hmm. we can take a journey together throughout the rest of the book. That's the, the crucial piece of writing advice I would have to anyone, whether they are pitching us a book or anyone a book, or any other piece of writing, or really even a presentation. It works really great for presentations. Get to we as quickly mm. as you can by figuring out and establishing who, who you are and who I am. You, the presenter, or the writer, and me, the reader, or the, the audience member. that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And you have a an equation, I believe, that encapsulates this message quite quite well. What is that equation? I plus U equals we. 
Mm. Not rocket science, but uh, it is still like the sort of thing that, like many things, it, it's not complicated, but it still sort of doesn't, it seems to fall out of the grasp of many people who pitch books our way. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about the, the the fact that UX practitioners, when they come to writing a book about UX, we're naturally very good in our practice day to day of putting the user's needs front and center, but we seem to be uh, less comfortable doing that when it comes to other things. It doesn't apply just to writing books. I also hear through my conversations with other practitioners that often that lack of empathy uh, is uh, found where when it comes to other stakeholders within people's organizations. So oh. I think this equation is really uh, simple in a very uh, powerful way. You know, I plus U equals we of, of putting that front and center for people. Well, I'm just going to say uh, that, you know, a book is a product. So I think mm. many people forget <laughs> that maybe because books are so we're not, I mean, we're used to, you know, we relate to books in a very special and sometimes exalted way that we don't really remember that they're ultimately products. And also when you are the source of content, it's a very weird feeling than when you are working with, let's say a client who is, you know, behind the product, it, it's a different thing. I'm not trying to, you know, underplay how complicated and challenging this is, but it is, you know, not everyone can do it. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, um, I, I would just say, you know, see it as a product. Um, and, uh, then dust off your, you know, how you would go about any product. And, and that's, you know, maybe part of the key to, to developing a book that's successful. Mm. It also sounds like that's part of the reason behind your model of collaborating iteratively on books, because if you are writing a book, which is a product, which is essentially your knowledge, which is you are the product effectively, you're just creating a manifestation of yourself in an artifact like a book that it can be difficult for people to get that distance and have that effective mirror or feedback mechanism is that something that has played out in your experience working with Absolutely. authors in fact what that suggests uh, is another good point so i'm glad you brought it up um, that you know many cases i find that the author who's got the deep and authoritative expertise in an area is not the right person to write about it hmm. because they don't have the empathy for one. Uh, they, they have, they, they can't really get the distance. They don't know what it's like to be new to the subject. Uh, whereas someone who takes someone who's a, a, you know, a, a, a good investigator as well as a good writer, someone who's basically a journalist who goes out and, and, basically talks to the experts and synthesizes what they learn in a way that can be understood by a reader does a better mm -hmm. job. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think um, those are the people, those who take the journalistic approach that really kind of um, not only have the empathy, but they really engage the community around them and in effect make the people they talk to and do research um, with to develop their content, they make those people into stakeholders. Mm. So we, I said a little earlier that research and, and marketing are, are two sides of the same coin. By that I mean, while you're writing, you should be talking to people. The information shouldn't just come from you. 
you are not really the product. The community and its conversation that you maybe facilitate and take the lead in are the product. And mm. if you can draw people in to the process of developing your content, you make them stakeholders in the outcome. Those are the people who will write the Amazon reviews. Those are the people who will talk about how they had something to do with your work mm. and how excited they are that it's now seen the light of day. They won't do that, by the way, if you forget to ask them you know, for their email addresses. And, and uh, if you're running a survey, put something in at the end of the survey that says, oh, you know, when the book is out, I, I'd be happy to let you know and maybe send you a discount code or whatever. Mm. Um, and so that's the difference between the, like just doing the research and remembering that the research is also marketing. I, I've mm. done this myself that authors do it all the time. They forget to ask for those little bits of information to close the loop. They leave out that CTA and then they totally drop the ball on marketing. Mm. And so that's one of the things we do as a company, as a publisher. It's our responsibility to make sure that our authors don't forget that. Because it'll be uh, a really a real shame if they can't draw those people in who are engaged in their work once the work is available. You make them feel like you helped me, and now here's here's the product. Mm. And that's critical, critical to marketing a book. Mm. This is also an approach that you use. At Rosenfeld Media, you mentioned it earlier, you have the conferences, but you also have the communities and that those two things actually support each other in order to create a better product. And with the research and the marketing being two sides of the same coin, there's nothing that authors or practitioners should really be um, fearful of if they're actually contributing that value when they go to ask for an email address or ask for what might be considered a, a form of marketing um, as a, I suppose, a way of continuing or closing that feedback loop as you've spoken about. Well, it, they don't even necessarily, it doesn't even feel like marketing. Marketing mm. is like sales. Nobody likes to do it if you tell them that's what it is. Mm. But if you, if you guide them, in a way that's organic and natural, they'll they'll just do it because it's the right thing to do. So just mm. like it's a good thing to let people know who've helped you on your book that the book is now available, or send them a copy. I used to find this at Argus, where we had you know fairly young people coming out of library school. I couldn't say I need you to do sales when you're doing an engagement. You should be selling it. To, you know, because we want to get more work at Microsoft. We want to get more work at, at, at IBM. That wouldn't make sense. But if we could put them in a position where they felt so good about their work and felt like they could actually achieve something in their work, they sold it naturally without even mm. really. Let's shift gears and talk about something else that I know that you are very passionate about, which is your strong dislike for silos. You also seem to have a strong dislike for professional jargon. What do you think about the division that appears to be drawn at the moment within the UX and product community between researchers and people who do research? Oh, that's interesting. Well, about the whole issue of silos and jargon, I, I um, you know, we have an elephant as a logo company because I believe passionately 
and lead off all my podcasts with the fable of the blind man and the elephant. Hmm. And I, I'm convinced that um, to solve complex problems, to achieve rich insight, you need to have different kinds of perspectives, experiences, brains, ultimately, mm-hmm. toolkits, so forth. And to get to that, you have to put people in a position. You have to convene the band. You got to get the sax player and the bass player and so forth. Uh, and, and if you have silos, um, and you don't make an effort. I mean, it's hard for people to not be in silos, but if you don't make the effort to draw them together in smart, effective ways, it's a terrible investment to put together the, to hire all those people in the first place to, to, you know, what, what's the point if your mm-hmm. data scientists and your, and your ethnographers aren't talking, it's, that's a, that's malpractice. It's management <laughs> malpractice, if you ask me. And, um, jargon's part of that. And if you allow jargon to get in the way, first of all, you're reinforcing the priesthood in each of those silos. And I don't think progress is made when, you know, I'm, I'm with Martin Luther on this one. Uh, when um, we, we shield uh, uh, knowledge behind uh, a priesthood and, a, and Latin or some other dead language that's inaccessible to people. So yeah. you have to, you know, getting past jargon and uh, is one way uh, in my mind, good managers are essentially the Rosetta Stones for their organizations. They're the ones who are translating and giving incentives for that cross-pollination to happen. Now, you asked about a specific case, namely researchers versus people who do research. That's, and I'm, I know you've talked to Kate Towsey, uh, so that uh, you, you've probably got a lot deeper, more nuanced perspective on it uh, from her than I'll ever give you. But I will say this. Um, people do research versus researchers. Well, there shouldn't be a versus in that phrase because they're part of the same ecosystem. Mm. People do research are, are the people you, if you're a researcher, you want that. Yeah. I mean, in, in the near term, they may, the, the people do research may screw things up. They may misinterpret what they learn. They may commit an accidental malpractice of one sort or another. But in the long run, they're going to learn. Mm. And they don't necessarily need to be researchers, but they will become the people that researchers actually can have success with because they get it. They don't necessarily need the researchers to do the very elementary research because, you know, they'll have maybe even done that themselves. But then they'll be able to go to the researchers for the really, really interesting, challenging ideas and concepts and questions. That, that go mm. beyond the mundane. And that's progress. If, a, if an experienced researcher is working in an organization and is spending their time doing the very elementary setups of user, user studies and so forth, that's, that's, again, it's another form of management malpractice. Mm. If that same person is really being pushed to deepen their craft and to cross silos because they are working with different peers who have different deep levels of expertise, but they're also being pushed by, in effect, their internal clients, namely product people and, and other people who are, are know a little, knowing a little bit of research. That's when they're going to do their best work. 
that's when they're going to truly advance and, and make effective research in whatever setting they're working. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It seems that we are in or are about to enter a golden age of UX. You know, for many decades, UX was very fringe, but now almost every company seems to be hiring UX designers and researchers. Now that we have supposedly seen the value of research and design, what is the greatest challenge that we as a broad discipline face in helping our organizations to realize that return on the investment that they're making? Greatest challenge in terms of realizing that investment? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I do think it comes back to um, organizations realizing that the challenges they have are just induced by this kind of insane technology-driven path that most organizations are on, uh, aren't going to be solved by technologists. Hmm. In fact, they're only creating more problems. And the complexity is just enormous. And it goes not to just design, but how humans behave with each other. And, um, you know, and all the ethical considerations that are part of that. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, I just think about topics like we have a book coming out on this very shortly this month on conversation design and how like just how to have a conversation with people is something we don't even know how to do. And we're trying to have conversations with things. <laughs> so um, there's just like, I think, a realization that there are there's so much more that needs to be figured out for the world to work it's going to be technology driven. And yeah. um, I, I just, it comes back to, as you're saying, the, you need more blind men to figure those elephants out. And um, what I keep wondering about is why we don't hear more about synthesis. So the blind men can talk, but until they put their, their evidence together, how are they going to figure things out? And then synthesis should lead to insight, to truth. And why we don't talk more about that. I've been, for example, on a mission to get data scientists and, and qualitative researchers talking on and off for like eight, 10 years now. And I still <laughs> How's that going? Uh, I'm on my last legs, but I do have a group of around 100. I have a Google group of about 130 people now that want to do that, which is great. But most of them are qualitative people. They don't have that mm. many data scientists. And I, you know, I see frustration. I mean, not just like clearly I'm frustrated uh, with things, uh, but I, I see so many people in these established areas, like for example, market research. I know people who are frustrated with market research. And the reason I know them is because they have reached out to learn and meet people from user research because they feel like the canon of market research is basically defunct and, and moribund. Mm -hmm. And so they're frustrated. I've, and I've seen the same thing happen in, in anthropology and ethnography. And I've seen the same thing happen in information science and librarianship. And I've seen it happen in, in HCI and, and visual design and you name it. And these people, these young Turks, these frustrated types, 
are the ones who are so interesting because they're playing in the intersections. Mm. And they're, they're the ones who find themselves people without a country. And that's where UX comes in. Or mm. it doesn't have to be called UX. Whatever the umbrella is of the moment, it's good enough by me at least. And I'm, I think they're the ones who are going to, they the one, they're the ones who figure out the important stuff. They're the ones who are, are realizing that they're blind men and they, they're seeking out other blind men. So I always try to find the, the I'm looking for the data scientists still, I haven't had much luck, but I'm always find, looking for those frustrated outsiders who don't feel at home in their home, home field or profession. So I didn't really answer your question. I'm not sure I can, to be honest, but um, you know, this theme of, of convening people who come from these different silos is always going to be important to me because I think it's going to, it's important for us all. Mm. It really sounds to me that there's something almost about evolving the culture and that act of convening those people and try to create new opportunities and new possibilities across disciplines from that very act of bringing those people together. And it reminds me of something that you have wrote earlier, which was um, on, a, on your blog, actually, and I'll just quote you now. You've said, whether you realize it or not, you are constantly trying to define yourself, your resume, your portfolio, your skill set, your tribal allegiance, all will become moment prisons if you allow them to. Can you instead see these things as part of sequences, as unfolding stories of you? Tell us about that. What is a moment prison and how does that relate back to what we were just talking about? Oh, well, thank you for asking. Uh, by the way, you're one of the most wonderful researchers uh, when it comes to uh, being interviewed that I've ever met. Uh, you, you really, you've dug some nice nuggets out that I've forgotten about. So thanks for that. <laughs> but okay, moment prisons. Um, what I was writing about in that article, which is in Medium, is uh, you can Google moment prisons, and it's like the only use of that phrase. I find it very frustrating being the veteran of battle after battle after battle between, let's say, the information architects and the, the, the frustrated young Turks of interaction design who split off from them about 15 years ago. Uh, mm. And, you know, I guess there's no avoiding it you are going to have these splits and, and like i said that's where the interesting stuff ends up happening but i feel like we get so wrapped up in the definitions and let's say or the terminology hmm. let's say the term information architecture was really valuable at one point and you know it pulled together in our book actually helped people of all kinds of backgrounds and from different professions and really these different silos who all suffered from information problems. And well, they could, there's too much, they didn't know how to manage it, they didn't know how to organize it, they didn't know how to make it findable. And until that moment, they didn't have a common vocabulary or framework or concepts or term, information architecture in this case, to describe it. And voila, suddenly there was that, and people could have conversations, and that's half the battle. That's that Rosetta Stone I was talking about. Mm. Great. And then suddenly, information architecture didn't seem relevant anymore. And we, you know, wring our hands. Well, what happened to IA? 
and we don't you see that as a job title any longer and blah 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 i'm tired of that conversation i have been for some time because we become so invested in these terms and these definitions that it becomes a millstone around our collective necks and suddenly we're fighting about this stuff when we should really be exploring together well how can we build an even better rosetta stone how can we grow our knowledge together instead we split into these ridiculous tribes which i guess there's just no way around it but we shouldn't then the new tribe is really interesting for a moment in time and it comes up with its own great idea which then after a short amount of time becomes a prison and that's what i mean by moment prison so i'm i i see metaphors as moment prisons we get caught in metaphors that um, were great for a moment and then become confining i see definitions of, of professions that just can't keep up to date with the swirl of change that we face in this world. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's better ways to do it. You want to understand a field like interaction design. Don't define it with a dry, ridiculous uh, 20 words or so. Use something like look at a program for the interaction conference. And then better yet, look at it year to year to year, which you can do pretty mm-hmm. easily. Print those pages, those program pages off. Take a, Those are each snapshots of something that's constantly moving. They are moments. And if you look at them over sequence, you look at the conference program for last year and the year before that and the year before that, you will see change. And that mm-hmm. gets you out of those prisons. That creates the connective tissue. I guess what I'm really saying is I think we ignore how important time is. Time is a raw material in the designer's hands if only he or she will allow it and see it. And we get so stuck in that particular snapshot of the moment and we just totally miss out on how everything we work with is constantly changing and our designs and really our minds don't keep up with it because we are so locked in these prisons. Mm -hmm. That's a really excellent time in this interview to bring us down to the close and to my final question, Lou, which is thinking about what you have seen in your career to date and where the industry finds itself now. What is your greatest hope for the people who are working in what we currently call UX over the coming years? Um, My greatest hope is that we will avoid the moment prisons, obviously, and, um, you know, it's obvious stuff, I suppose. Not stop learning. How do you not stop learning? Well, you keep looking outside your silo. You keep looking outside your team. You keep looking outside where you live geographically. You keep looking. You keep learning. And um, you define what you do broadly enough that you give yourself not only enough flexibility and space, but really almost a mandate to yourself to learn beyond what you've learned. That's what I hope for. Mm. Such an important message. Thanks, Lou. This has been a wonderful conversation. It's given me much to think about. Thank you for so generously sharing your story and your insights and for also your outstanding and continued contribution to the field. Well, Brendan, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and um, 
thank you for such great questions. I'm really touched and uh, honored. So uh, um, thanks again. It's my pleasure, Lou. And for people who want to find out more about you and Rosenfeld Media, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I tweet from Lewis Rosenfeld. And of course, Rosenfeld Media is a, a pretty active account as well about what the company's up to. We're, I'm pretty active in, in LinkedIn. And of course, uh, rosenfeldmedia.com is uh, our website. Great. Thanks, Lou. We'll be sure to post a link through to all of those great websites and resources in the show notes. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you listen as well. As I mentioned, we'll be posting all the interesting bits and pieces in the show notes, including any resources that we've covered. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more of these great conversations with world-class leaders in design, UX, and product, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. And until next time, keep being brave.